refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. I'm Serge Antonin. Black and White and Thin Blue Lines is an original podcast co-created by Clark Ollers and me. Welcome to another episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. My name is Clark Ollers. And I'm Serge Antonin. And we have a special guest this evening, if you'd introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm Wayne Wilson. And I know Wayne Wilson as either Lieutenant Wilson or Mr. Wilson, but I certainly don't call him by his first name. But we're going to start... uh, this episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines by introducing our guest background to you, and then we're going to move on and discuss the Ovalde incident in Texas, Texas shooting. So, Lieutenant, why don't you, I guess first start, you had some military background. Why don't you take us there, please? And also, where did you grow up and that kind of thing? Well, I spent all my life uh, in Baltimore City. The only time I left Baltimore City is when I went into the military. I joined the Navy after graduating from high school, I joined the Navy in 1968, spent four years in the United States Navy, and left there in 1972, and came home in 72 and joined the police force. Just coincidentally, because that's 50 years ago this year, Hey, and I joined the Howard County Police as a cadet in 72, right out of high school. And I was born in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm feeling old. <laughs> don't, don't, feel, don't feel old. He should feel like a baby. That's yes, all. I do. He's, yeah, he's the child in the group. Oh, yeah. After joining the Baltimore City Police Department, your experiences where you went to the police academy and, and your assignments and so forth, please. I went to the academy. At, it was then uh, housed at the Mount St. Agnes School, I guess, up in Mount Washington. It was a Catholic retreat area. Uh, the nuns were still there, in fact. And we, I went through the academy there. And when I left the academy, I don't even remember how long we were in the academy. I guess it was 16 weeks. 16 weeks, maybe. 16 or 18, yeah, I think, in those something days. Like, yeah. Wow. And uh, I just went to the Northern District and stayed in the Northern until I was promoted to, to sergeant. And, and what year about was that? I want to say you were 19, left the northern, went to the southeast district and stayed there. Then I went, I mean, I just kept moving around everywhere as a sergeant. I went to the north, back to the northern, back to the, went to the western, went to the northwest, was detailed a bunch of places. Uh I just worked everywhere, mostly in patrol. I was about to ask that. Sounds like you were you you were in uniform yeah. patrol most of that time period. Most of that time period, yes. Uh, I didn't leave patrol until I made lieutenant. And when you made lieutenant, where what was your assignment? They sent me to CID burglary. Now, what year was that? It was eighty-eight. Oh, okay. And I, I'm curious: was CID burglary in those days? Uh, organized as kind of a central citywide burglary unit, or was it, uh, as you see these days in the district, a lot of the burglaries are handled at the district level? It was central citywide. We had a, a, a burglary unit, and then we had detectives in that unit assigned to a district. Oh, okay. So all my, <laughs> I had the Western District Burglary Unit, and I had two detectives assigned to me. Was there crime in the Western? For our listeners, the, the Western District, I guess most recently, was probably... Freddie Gray. Mr. Freddie Gray, Gray yes. 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 And then where the riots started and so forth. Ground yes. zero. Right, okay. So I was being a little sarcastic about the Western District. One of the quick stories I want to tell about uh, Lieutenant Wilson is, Lieutenant Wilson was working at the Howard County District Court as, I guess, a courtroom bailiff was in his suit. There was a young, I don't know if you even remember this, but there was an African-American male in courtroom five, 
and he was acting the fool, and he gets out in the hallway, and he's running his mouth, and he starts to leave. He's just going to leave court. You're kind of walking in through the double doors and walking in the general direction of the disturbance. I don't know if somebody called for help or if you just heard it from your post out front. The young man starts running, and he's run past probably five police officers, but he didn't run past you. You put this big ball out and just grabbed his arm. He stopped immediately, and Serge uses an expression all the time, power perceived as power achieved. <laughs> and I always like the expression from Serge, and Serge, i got to tell you, because I was thinking, I'm ready to jump in. If you got in a brawl and needed a backup, I'd do my part to help you. But what was so funny is, the guy did not say anything to you except yes sir, no sir, and you walked him back to the courtroom. And I remember thinking, he, this is my honest assessment, Serge. This young man perceived his match. In other words, he just there's something about the way, he, and I don't remember you even saying one word to him. I have no recollection of it. <laughs> that's the best kind. Of, that's the best kind of story. <laughs> that's the that's the safe way, civilly, I guess. But he didn't he didn't give you. It was just so funny to me because I went home that night and called my brother and said, man, I said, there really is a sixth sense that some officers have and also that some criminal element has yeah, about who they can push and who they can't push. I, I agree with that totally. And yes. now all the lines are blurred in this day and age. Nobody knows who's who or what's what anymore. I I would say they've more than blurred. They've almost <laughs> erased. Yeah. Uh, well, I think. The citizens know where they are. It's the police that don't have an understanding of yep, where they're the guidance or bearing. Yep, they what don't. do you mean by that? What I mean is, especially after Freddie Gray and George Floyd and the uptick of people, the citizens against the seem like against the police and all the hoopla around policing and how police respond to citizens in, in this country. Um, police don't know exactly how to approach people and how to how to express their authority. I mean, when you put that badge on, that badge gives you an authority that you have to use and use it correctly. And which leads to a huge responsibility. Exactly. Yep, yep. And I think police now are afraid, is the word I guess I want to use, to use their authority because it seems that this progressive society now has gone after prosecuting police, and especially in Baltimore City, like Marilyn Mosby. I mean, that was her forte. seemed like I let a criminal go, but the police don't have a chance with me. And she'll just <laughs> she'll just charge you even though she doesn't have a case. So, I mean... and when, To her, it's all about the court of public opinion. Exactly. Keeping and, that in session. And it's, keeping my face in the, in, the, yep. in the spotlight. And it's sad, but it, it's also very dangerous. Well, we're seeing the direct result. Like we were talking about before we started recording, here we are, 203 murders, and July's not even over yet. And we can't even handle Squeegee Kid. <laughs> In <Yeah>. a city <laughs> a fifth the size of Chicago. <laughs> well, let me ask you, um, Lieutenant, going back to your first days as a law enforcement officer. Now, you had you had the advantage, I see it as an advantage, of coming from the military environment where there's a chain of command and there's a an authority that you respect based on rank and so forth. But how did you learn how to speak to the public and how to make arrests, how to how to discriminate between when you make an arrest and when you let somebody go and so forth? Hmm. Well, I think it's twofold, maybe threefold. First of all, the public had a um, respect for the police and the uniform. And there was a there was a segment of society who backed the police. So therefore they knew that you out there to get the bad guys. That segment was larger back then, right? Exactly. Than it is today. Yeah. Or either larger or more outspoken. Gotcha. Now they've kind of taken a back seat. But 
you go on the street and you know people made you feel good about what you were doing. And you know, a bad guy. It was like I had a, I was assigned a post in the Northern District right off of Pimlico Road. Uh, and I was just talking to an um, ex-state's attorney the other day about that post because a, a guy got, it was a murder up there. A policeman got murdered up there. But uh, anyway, I knew I get out of my car on that post and people would approach me and speak to me and talk to me and point out things to me and say, you know, that guy over there that lives at this address, he's doing some things that you shouldn't be doing. I said, okay. And I put it in my hat and keep it moving. And and I eventually run up against this guy, and I just talk to him and let him know that I was the police, and I have to work this area every day. And one thing he's got to understand is I'm the police, and he's what he is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not leaving, and he's not going to leave, so we're going to have to work this out some kind of way. And more importantly, the good people shouldn't be leaving. Exactly. Yep. I mean, you got to feel, they have to feel comfortable sitting on their front porch. Absolutely. How did you feel about the um, the use of force in those days? In other words, did you feel like you were, I, I feel like police these days are handcuffed about the use of force, even appropriate use of force. Yes. Um, I mean, it, I think in the academy it was grained into you. And it was, in that 16 weeks, they told you, you meet force. You're not with equal force. You got to stop it. It's you have to overcome that force that you meet with, and you're met with, and you can't be afraid to use force. You give me, we give you nightsticks, we give you guns, <laughs> we give you mace. You got to use them. And I don't know whether I don't know how they're doing it now. I really don't. I mean, they got more stuff on their guns on now than I, <laughs> than I can expect a gadget. <laughs> yeah, I know they need a. I, I joke some of the guys when I'm in the mood to irritate them. I say, "Where's your water bottle holder?" <laughs> you know, I mean, they've got everything. They got here. everything on the gun belt. Right. I, mean, I think I had. I think I had a belt loop with 18 bullet loops. Right. In it. Right. And a the handcuff case. <laughs> right. And then a thing of mace. That was it. But and I bet you didn't use mace too often. No, I hated it. Right. Uh, it bounced off people. And yeah, it, was, it disabled mostly police. Didn't it? Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> that was my experience. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, in terms of making an arrest and going to court, did you feel like you were given a fair uh, listen by the by the jury or by the judge in those days. Yeah, and back in those days, uh, the courts were in the district, right, in the station house, right. So, you know, you knew the judges mostly, and the judges got to know you. State's attorney got to know you real well, and they got to rely. They knew if you put did something that was good. Of course, we taught most of the state's attorneys coming out of law school. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the judges judges were very fair back then. And, uh, you know, they they looked out for police, really. I mean, one thing you didn't want to do was fight a police. Hey. That was not, it was a (laughs) (laughs) no-no. Now, let me ask you this, right? Kind of segueing into that that uh arena who was the last commissioner that you worked for frazier okay so who was the very next one if you remember after frazier yes i think it was ron daniels okay now do you think that back then the commissioners or the executives in the police department or the police departments, even nationwide from what you've you know just seen from your personal experiences and watching the news were more supportive and more reasonable in judgment of their uh, employees or, or their officers, if you will. Um, my feelings are when Frazier came to the Baltimore city police department prior to that, most commissioners came up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. So Frazier was like an outsider, our first outsider. 
And I can never, I never will forget when he came. He said, I was on a plane coming from San Jose and I was reading the newspaper about Baltimore. I said, wow, that's a good way to learn about Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> so you're coming here to, to a culture you know nothing about. You don't know the police culture, right. you don't know the street culture, but you're coming here to make a change. You're making a change. So I was yeah, like, okay. Funny. So that's, I, shortly, I left shortly thereafter. And that's understandable. I want to, I'm not trying to put you on the spot if you think the question is putting you on the spot a little bit, but let's cut ahead to now it's 2022. We've got a progressive state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, although she apparently has lost the Democratic. She conceded. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. She has lost the <laughs> yeah. Democratic uh, primary for state's attorney. It's going to be Ivan Bates. And so maybe things will change. But assuming that you could uh, begin as police commissioner this afternoon in Baltimore City. And first of all, what would be your first priority? Hmm. Probably to uh, sit down with uh, the mayor and say, listen, I run the police department and you run the city. We understand our lines. Now, you can't be showing up at every scene with me <laughs> and you do the talking that don't look good absolutely well that's a good that's a very good point i do think that um mayor scott yeah is frequently in fact sometimes he's in a police jacket or something yeah well, so, he, he and, and i think it says mayor on it like it's no, weird it yeah it's like a yeah. weird yeah never seen it before until then well it's just strange to me yes and uh, I think it'd be great if you were running the police department. And then what do you say to the officers? Is What would be your expectation of a young police officer in uniform getting in a marked police car in Baltimore City going out on the street tonight? Well, I would say that you know what the law is and you know how to enforce the law. Now let's go enforce it. Now by that, I mean, I think you mean... When arrests are necessary, arrests are going to be made. You got to make an arrest. I don't care whether the state's going to prosecute or not. If it's a lawful arrest, you make the arrest. That's your job, to make the arrest. You know, I had a, a police lieutenant out here in Howard County who'd been a former Baltimore City officer, and he, he used to say the, the purpose of a police officer is to introduce criminals to the criminal justice system. You know, it's kind of like that basic. I don't necessarily agree with that 100% because I think uh, it's a little more nuanced than that, especially nowadays. However, I piggyback on what you said. When lawful that's the bottom line. Like, I can't, when I started, that's how it was. But toward the end of my career, it was that they created this kind of one man above the crew mentality. And by that, I mean, they pushed every officer to try to, for one, claw their way out of patrol by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. Patrol wasn't respected no matter exactly. what you did. And now it's even worse, which, which is so unfair because it should be the backbone. And my next question to you is how would you get the morale back? Let's say you were commissioner today. You started this afternoon. How would you get the morale back of a police department like Baltimore, where the cops are so beaten down since Freddie Gray and all the stuff we're seeing? And then the, the George Floyd, all the stuff we've seen nationwide. How would you get the morale back so that the cops can start go out, going out and better serving the public legally, of course, and justifiably, but going out dealing with crime as it should be dealt with well I used to always tell everybody I had my issues in the police department myself as a lieutenant I used to tell I told Frazier in his office I said you keep dealing with this bar on my collar I'm a man deal with a man and the bar will fall in line there you go I like that I do too you know, I heard from a Baltimore City officer one time, it's not the badge, it's the man behind the badge. Absolutely. Yeah. And you agree with that, I, exactly. I take it. Exactly. And that's how you get the morale up. You have to deal with these people as humans, as men and women who have respect, and not that you out 
to nail anybody. And that's the key right there. Did you feel like you, uh, that your subordinate officers liked and respected you? Well, they often say they do, but I don't, <laughs> I don't like to brag on well, myself. But. No, no, don't you brag on yourself because well, I've seen your personality. I'm not bragging I, on myself. I I've seen how people, I just think there's some that are natural leaders and some yes. that are. Yep. And I, yeah, yeah, I think they tend to, they tend, they tend to think that I was a great, a great leader and they knew that I wouldn't tell them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Right. And I wouldn't expect them to do anything that I wouldn't do. Right. And that's Follow the key. My example. Exactly. And I'm, I'm curious, you, you, one of the reasons I was hoping you'd be a guest on this podcast, and I appreciate you coming out, is you posted something on Facebook one day that caught my eye, and could you kind of summarize that for our listeners? Well, I was thinking about the Uvalde situation and cops in general. Now, the Uvalde situation is that shooting at the elementary school, Rob Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, right? That's what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. And I was thinking, wow, this is not how policemen supposed to react. And I start thinking about my career, and I was thinking about, you know, when I made sergeant, the reason I got promoted to sergeant is because I saw people getting promoted to sergeant that I didn't want to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so I said, I got to get to be a sergeant because I don't want this guy supervising me. He's a house cat. House yeah. cat. There it is. I What's said, a house cat for our listeners? A house cat's a guy that spends his time in the police station, never wants to go on the street, will do anything to get out of going on that street. Anything. Anything to get in that radio car and go on in that street. And, you know, these guys, they groom themselves to get promoted. Exactly. That's how they find, that's the way they try to get off the street is get promoted. And then they find themselves in a decision-making position and not able to make a decision. And that's where we are with Uvalde, almost. Uvalde had another twist to it, and it, it came after the Freddie Gray and the Floyd George Floyd stuff, and policing in general took on a whole different perspective of stand down. Give them room to demonstrate. Now, I've never, when I heard that, I was like, oh, my god. Well, goodness. actually, to demonstrate, I'm just going to pick up on one word. I think that she was, she was literally the mayor, Rawlings, was like, give them room to destroy property. Exactly. Demonstrate. In other words, demonstrating. I don't, have, I don't think any of us here don't believe people have a First Amendment right to peacefully demonstrate, peaceably. And one of the laugh, laughs I got on CNN was somebody said, well, I don't remember the word peaceably being in the Constitution. Well, it is there. It's there. In other, right. In other words, you don't have the right to go out and burn my car because you don't like the way the police are treating you in this city. And uh, Mayor Rawlings was basically give give acreage, is what I call it, from a military point of view. Yeah. She was literally giving up part of the city. She was uh step back and let them take it. Right. And, <laughs> and at that time, she had a weak police commissioner who basically bowed down to not only her, but to anybody in the public who made a mean face. However, he was a, a bully within the police department. Anyone who worked under him will tell you the same. Who was that? Dr. Anthony Batts. <laughs> well, Dr. Batts, uh, did, he certainly... Not a stethoscope doctor. He's, <laughs> he's a PhD. doctor of philosophy or something. Yeah. Well, God bless his PhD and yeah. whatever it is, piled high and deep. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I think is so obvious to experienced non-house cat police officers like yourself is that there has to be a, a kind of a, a line which is not crossed. If it's crossed, there has to be a police response and a consequence. And I don't think there – I was watching people steal cars in front of the police and commit crimes in front of the police. It got crazy. Yeah, stomping police cars. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> and, and so you would basically say to young officers going out there, I expect you to uh, enforce the law. Now, how would you expect officers to learn how to treat people where – I think under O'Malley, it got a little crazy in the city with officers making arrests for 
man sitting on his front porch having a beer, the kind of the no tolerance policies got out of hand in my mind. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I was there under O'Malley. He was he was a piece of work. Um, <laughs> I, really, I mean, he he wanted me to give him information on other people in the police department. And I was like, I don't do that. It's not me. Not uh, your character. No. I said, if you want to find out about him, go look for him. Go find out. But not, I'm not going to give it to you, but I don't, I don't know. He started the whole thing with trying to run the police department. and From the mayor's chair, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And when I came on, Pomelo was there, who was ex-Marine, who gathered information on all the politicos and said, <laughs> if you keep messing with my police department, I will expose you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you had your Hoover. There, there you, you go. Yeah, there you right. go. So that's what I was used to. And that was, you know, it was like, it didn't give us a free-for-all because Pomelo was really, if you screwed up, he was, he was coming after you, police or not. I mean... He had a, he he ruled like a marine. You know, I heard a story about Parmelo. I don't know if it's true or not, but they said at three o'clock in the morning he might show up on your scene. He may. Is that is that true? Yeah, and that's the way he. In other words, but don't you think that's a great way to be a police commissioner? Any, Absolutely. Any of the area chiefs could would like that too. They, I mean, they would pull you up and ask you what the crime was on your post, and you had to take responsibility for what you were out there to do. And that was work that area. If you want a postcard signed to you, you but now I don't understand. They don't even, they have, even have posts. Yep, have they ain't going to no speak pride. with four guys. And I said, how do you do that? That's not safe. Largest district in the city. Yeah. They're going on the street with and, you know, four the whole and five thing, guys they, at night. They're putting <laughs> things like redistrict. We're going to redistrict. We're going to redraw the lines of the districts. Well, what does that do? That doesn't do anything. You still right. got the same amount of police. That's the mo- the the elephant in the room is you got to get some feet out there on the ground doing the policing. And I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to get worse. Let's talk about it, if you don't mind, Serge, of courage. One of the things you said is you wondered if the police officers in this day and age, if um, – I forget the word you use, but basically it comes down to, do you have the guts to go out here and confront the criminal element? And I heard a really interesting analysis of Mayor Scott where somebody said he thinks he's made a deal with the gangs not to hurt them because nobody's really confronting gangs in Baltimore. You, no. were, you, you made a joke, not a joke, but you made a reference to the squeegee, which isn't really a gang, but... The police in Baltimore don't seem to be able to have a handle on the squeegee. Yeah, this sort of a gang now. I mean, they, they've exposed themselves. They shot a man and killed him. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, they, they have the gang mentality. Policing is sort of a gang mentality. Yes. Uh, and as much as people don't want to acknowledge it, it is. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is it should be, it's, it's, I wouldn't even say a gang. It's more of a team mentality. And I think it has to be in order to get out there and get the job done, especially if you're in areas like Baltimore City and Chicago. You can't just go out there and pretend that you're going to just pin on a badge and go preach to the masses. And at some point, they will change their approach. Not going to happen. No. Well, Lieutenant, what, what's your take on that? And follow up on your point about why you think it is kind of a gang mentality. Well, I mean, in as much as I used to tell people, you might get me, <laughs> but there's 3,000 more of me out here right. that's going to come looking for you. You don't want that. We're the largest gang in Baltimore. And it never just, it never ends. I said, to me, on the end of this radio, there's 3,000 police, <laughs> three of my gang members. All I got to do is call them. Just like you get on your phone and call your gang, I can call mine. Who's going to win? It's not going to be pretty. So Now, when you said that, were you worried that a captain was going to call you up or a major was going to call you up and give you a hard way to go for that? No. 
would you be today if you were a young cop and you said that with on your body worn camera? <laughs> I'm being serious. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you stand a chance of going to jail. For <laughs> no, but it, it, I'm being very serious. Yeah, I say I, this for our listeners. I'm serious too. They're, they're not allowed to say that kind no. of thing. And I, and I really do think it, it, when you say it, I don't really think you're trying to uh, be a gang, like in the sense, like you've got to give me protection money. No, it's not. That's like why that. I said more like a team. Right, but right. I, I get it because but, I've stood in roll call, sir, and had majors come in and say, "What is going on? Why is the crime spiking here? There, this is the largest gang in Baltimore. You better go out there and put your hands on people." In the sense, not put your hands on people like beat them up, but right. go out there. Search people, write right. the appropriate reports, and do what you're supposed to do. But you can't let them get comfortable with carrying guns, with selling drugs, and you're the largest gang. Go, go get it. I actually, uh, as an aside, I just want to tell you, I, I had a, I wrote this, didn't get anywhere, but I was representing a couple of Baltimore City police officers maybe 20 years ago, and I said if I had these kind of men, and I was police commissioner, I would have them get in their police uniforms with shirts that have been cut off at the <laughs> shoulder and have the flash of the Baltimore City Police Department <laughs> tattooed, not just for a temporary, you know, on their arms. <laughs> and I'd put them up there on North Avenue and say, you don't have to sling dope on a corner. You know what I mean? You you can be one of us. Because I thought to a person, I was, I've been very impressed with many of the men and women I've represented uh, that were Baltimore City police officers. You know... I'll tell you a little story, and I won't name the area chief who did it. <laughs> I mean, he's dead now anyway. So, um, But there was a problem in, in northwest Baltimore from in Park Heights. Uh, Duke and Luz was up there then. And this area chief, he, was area, he had the northern, the northwest, and the western. That was his two, three districts. He took officers from each of those districts and said, meet me at Duke and Lou's on Park Heights at such and such a time. And don't wear your uniform. Come in plain clothes. <laughs> and we walked up, we went into Duke and Lou's restaurant and was full of people, business people, community people. And he stood up in front of them and says, you told me this is your problem in this area? And I'm telling you, this is the answer to your problem standing behind me here. They're going to resolve your issues. But if somebody complains about them, all of you people in this room got to come to their defense. Oh, wow. That was his, that was his, his rule. I'm going to tell you something funny. When I hear that, I feel like the pendulum has swung so far to the right to now, it's or to the left, to the left. I'll say, it's almost going to take something like that again to start getting things under control. But the problem will be, what will, how far will it go? How far will it swing back to the right? You know what I mean? Because yeah. think about it. Like I always talk about the Rodney King effect. We saw, to me, one of the worst atrocities committed to a man when they beat Rodney King. I mean, he lived, but that was awful. We don't want to see that again, but what we're seeing now, we don't want to see that. And we would leave the Northwest District, six of us, that's all it was, with our radios and brown paper bags <laughs> so they couldn't see it. And we just go walking down Town Road to Park Circle and up Park Heights. And we would start locking people up, just calling the wagon, throwing them in. So we'll get you when we'll book you when we get to the state. I mean, catching. They were dealing drugs, and then we just take the drugs and locking them up. And within a month, we're nothing. You know, if I had, uh, if I was police commissioner, thinking about the Rodney King beating, mm -hmm. you probably had the equivalent of some house cats at the end of that pursuit. Because my personal theory about the way certain police act out. yeah. Is they act out. I told it to my, my mother at the time said, Well, if I was a policeman, I'd have been scared. And I've told you this, Serge. I told my mother, if the man in the middle of that circle had been, and I love the man, Muhammad Ali, in his prime, I wouldn't have been scared. And she goes, Oh, you think you're so tough? I said, No. I think that with, you know, 10 police officers around me, 
he's going to get one punch in, and that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Right. Meaning, you know, so I truly know my heart rate wouldn't have been screaming all like that, and I certainly wouldn't participate in a beatdown like that. No, no, Where, no. in fact, it, it's honestly, it's, to me, it's, um, I can't use the word here, but, you know, it's the way a certain type of person acts. Which, Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. not the way a man acts. Yes. I and agree so I think that, uh, I really do think it comes down to, to having the right kind of character. And I think this lieutenant has the character that he could go out there and command the respect of his troops. Just, and, just like the gun trace task force. Uh-oh. I mean, one of our favorite topics. I mean. Preach. There's <laughs> no way you're going to lock these guys up and not tell me some boss didn't know that. Mm. Some boss, some bosses. Yeah, I'm, Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm saying. And the main one is now, uh, and now went in in charge down in Fairfax County, Virginia. By the way, Serge and I have been saying this to. I, I do not believe for a second. Not a he second. Stopped at the sergeant. No, I don't believe. No, it. these guys went to every Comstat. Comstat. Yeah, yeah. Right. Was, I, I went to one, and I told my major, "Don't ever invite me down here. Don't ever bring me down here with Why? you." Why? Why? I said these people. These people never know how to make. They never made a this. I made more decisions at roll call than oh they'll make in their whole career. Correct, correct. But they do a lot of yelling and screaming. I, I hear. How they gonna stand me down when I'm out there on the street where the rubber meets the road, and they in this house running around with their pressed down uniforms, drinking coffee? And when they were back in the position of a street cop. They didn't have to go through this, no. but now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they want to make demands. Yeah. And I said, it's I, don't, crazy. "I don't play these games." Yeah. So, uh, you know, Gun Trace Task Force. When you have a stat-driven police department, you set yourself up for that. Amen. Kind of and then they pretend that it's not stat-driven. It's because you can't tell the public. Yeah, we. Every one of our cops, we want them to go out and arrest people, stop them, stop and frisk them 10 times a day. But then when they get caught, they want to blame it on the individual officer. We don't know what he was doing. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's terrible. They knew. They knew. Of course. Of course they knew. So now let's take all this wisdom you have and oh, this we experience and turn it towards old Valdi. And please tell our listeners. I mean, I'm, first, I'm going to tell you my bias. My bias is... Being a police officer almost has nothing to do with it. I expect any adult male, able-bodied, to interfere with a man killing children. I just think it's that it's simple. It's that simple. And, and so to me, uh, I, you know, I believe that the police officers obviously have an important role and they had an authority and so forth, but I can't get past the fact I you will not find me in a hallway with 20 armed men worried about kicking the door. Not just armed, but well-armed. Oh, they I'm didn't sorry. have slingshots and 38s. <laughs> they were well on. It absolutely sickens me what happened. But I mean, what's, what's your what's your take? I was sick before I saw the video. After I saw the video, I was ready to say, oh, my goodness. And why? Tell me why. Because I saw those police running away from this guy in the building. I'm like, why are you giving up ground to him? Oh my, I love the military. Exactly. That's what I meant I see, about the riot. We don't give up anything. You don't, give, a, you don't right. give up ground to right. criminals. Right. We take it and we hold it. Yes. Amen. And then we advance. Amen. <laughs> so so you were upset before you even saw the video. Well, I saw the video. Once you saw the video. When I saw the video and saw a guy wiping his hands with this clean hand sanitizer. And guy on his phone. I'm like, is this a game? And, or? you know, it turns out the guy on the phone was apparently texting his, his wife. His wife, yeah. who, was, who was killed in the classroom. Yes. The teacher, oh, my teachers. God. I don't see how. It's no... Listen, my whole philosophy is the higher the rank and command gets on scene, the slower the response will be. Absolutely. I they agree. take too much into consideration. A sergeant, an officer, a lieutenant, maybe, gets on the scene, evaluates it, acts on it. It minimizes the damage that that scene can cause. I mean, if you stand in there waiting for some captain or major, or the po police commissioner to give you the green light. Outside the building, waiting for to give you. Who hasn't policed in 20 years? <laughs> I'm like, I had, a, I had an incident one time when I was an officer at Sinai Hospital. Never forget, it was a, it was a, a union demonstration. The, the workers were up on the tables, and they were demonstrating. And I was with a, my partner was Pete France. 
So it was almost shift change. And I said, listen, we ain't waiting for no boss to get in here because if we're going to be here till midnight if they get in here. <laughs> I got up and grabbed that guy off the table and said, you out of here. <laughs> they said, you can't do that. I said, I just did it. <laughs> but nowadays, you, you might be sitting in a, in a courtroom. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it would have been on. Uh, so if you'd been uh, one of the officers or even the rank of sergeant and you're on a Valdi, what do you got to do? It's nothing that's going to keep me out of that room. And I want to say this. I feel like the heart and supposed courage that brought you into that profession should have taken you into that classroom. I mean, nothing or no one would have kept me from going in there. Yep. I mean, you couldn't give me a command and tell me stayed out of that. But Do you I, have children? I, mean, I, have one, I have one son. I, even if I had no son. No, no, I understand. I just I mean, if can you imagine having a child? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how these men face the parents. I don't I don't know how they shave without having a desire to cut their throat. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, I have, a, I, you know, I have children. I would have gone there barehanded if I had I to. mean, it's just unconscionable how you can hear gunshots and no children in there being killed and you standing outside. I'm like, no, kick this door down, do some pride open. Give me a Halligan tool off a fire engine, anything to pry this door. We going in here. We getting in here. And I, I just, I, you know, I, I just don't understand. And given the day's climate, if I was, if I were a young officer right now, I would be riding around the street, going through scenario after scenario in my head. What happened? What would I do if this happened here? How would I respond? I have a buddy who is an assistant principal at a school in Georgia. A lieutenant from the police department reached out to him so they could come train an active shooter drill in his school. He said, LT, whatever you need, need the school open late, whatever you need to do, because these guys need to know the layout of that school. At least do a walkthrough through Absolutely. every school in your area. What do you do if you're a young police officer and to be candid, People have been abused in Baltimore by the Gun Trace Task Force and so forth. Innocent people and, and not so innocent people. You know, there were some criminals that were lied on, but they were lied badly on. Yes. And it's got to it's got to be hard then to be the next officer up dealing with the public. Yeah. And, and they're behind the eight ball now because the retention rate is so bad. And the federal consent decree. Yeah. I mean, when I came on, I had officers with 20 years on telling me what to do and how to do it. It wasn't a sergeant, some corporal. It was an officer who had a time on the street and said, nah, son, this is the way you do it. You know, and... And that has changed. That has changed yeah. so much. Yep. And, you you know, you looked up to them guys and you did whatever they told you to do because they they knew the way to get around it and how to how to work the system and how to work in the system. Who was the who was the best commissioner you worked for? Do you think the best? Yes, all around that you thought was the Bishop Robinson. There's a, a building named after him, right? Yeah, the, the, com- the, headquarters. the headquarters, yeah, yeah. And, and why? He was a cops cop. Yeah, he worked the streets. He worked detectives. He worked his way through that whole department. And he waited his time, and he he looked out for everybody. I mean, if you were wrong, if you were wrong and you didn't really do anything bad, bad, they would pull you aside, curse you out, tell you don't do it again, and send you back out there. However, you know, if you did something you didn't tolerate when you crossed the, the law line, if you broke the law, you you were gone, but— those guys, they looked out for you. They weren't going to let anybody hurt you, and they didn't want you to hurt anybody. And I'm sure back then they didn't manufacture corruption. No. Because, <laughs> like, we go back to the Gun Trace Task Force, and you say that you believe, as do I, as does Clark, that you can't say that it was just the sergeant and his minions who were bad, but that corruption was overlooked. However— there were people who came along and did things that weren't even criminal that they made sure they got to the state's attorney and 
they manufactured criminal cases and were supposedly clamping down on the bad cops. I mean, you had you had defense attorneys who were squealing on these guys and and pointing out Ivan Bates. Ivan Bates was one in, that comes to mind. Uh, right, Jeremy Eldridge. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he was in the state's attorney's office. I mean, he, he knew these guys were bad. And you couldn't call them to testify, you know. But they they were bringing in the stats that the city wanted, and nobody seemed to care until it hit the fan. I still think that O'Malley and that um, that Comstat and that no tolerance policy overall hurt the Baltimore Police hurt Department as much as Biden's crime bill. Now, thank you for uh, exactly. <laughs> in other words, Biden's Biden's for more African he's more, in prison. And I tell people that, and they just look at me like I'm crazy. But this and guy, the Clintons. <laughs> oh yes. yes, but hey, you know I'm left leaning, so hey. No, whatever. I know you're left leaning, yeah. but I mean, well, but that's what we're we're we yeah. still respect you and love you. Well, I'm gonna say a couple things. One is policing is a full contact sport. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and it's not touch football. Okay, you, they're playing a full contact sport by touch football rules on the police side. On the yeah. criminal side, they have no rules. So you, and secondly, if unless we get the education system in this country under control, when you falsifying twelve thousand grades and passing kids that can't read, write, or spell their name. You dooming them to be squeegee kids for the rest of their lives. Squeegee cat kids with guns in with their bags. With guns, exactly. So the whole education system needs to be charged and brought to trial for some of these murders that are occurring because they are responsible. Those, the politicians who allow it to happen and not... Re- you don't hear anything about this grade thing going on in Baltimore City. All you hear about is all these murders. Well, murders are a symptom of something else. Abs- there's a direct correlation between the years and years of grade fixing and poor exactly. education and the, the amount of murders that we're seeing today. It's all correlated. And yep. you can't separate them. You should be as up- outraged at, at the murders as you are the people that commit them and the the system that they grew up in. And, I, I am, so just so you know. Well, I know Surges. Oh, you yeah, said I on this podcast. I'm talking to the people that's listening yeah, to this yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them. Amen. <laughs> Whoever hears my voice, you need to be upset about this and raising the high heavens about why these kids are being taught, taught this way. It's not fair. It it's it's, fair. it's Absolutely It's unfair. not only not fair, it's criminal. And I, I, that is a fact, and I've said that on the podcast. These people should be the the the, the board of you should pull a wagon up to the board of education and load all of them. Load them all in up in there. You know, just tell another quick O'Malley story. If you remember when O'Malley was mayor, the board of education was missing like a million dollars. Do you remember that? Yeah. A week okay. or just well, there's a, there's a point where a million dollars was missing. And I at home I used to raise my hand, somebody in my family would call on me. I was being sorry. They knew this. This is how I was being funny. I go, ooh, like I was a kid in school. They go, does Clark have something to say? I say, was it cash? (laughs) (laughs) Because if it's not cash, there's an audit trail. In other words, I don't even understand. How can you have a million dollars of tax money that you don't know where it went? Don't, I'm, just don't feed me that crap and pretend I'm not stupid to believe it. It's corruption. Corruption. And I think people get away with it. Well, they get away with it. Because of the disparate treatment, uh, and, and I hate to to point everything back to race, but you know how I feel. It, the, the disparate treatment, and think about who is losing out. It's these African-American kids. It's these Hispanic kids. It's not, and I'm not saying that, um, that uh, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with the economics, because that's a big part too, but uh, the disparate treatment that the black and brown people are subject to, I mean, we see it at every level, not just the criminal justice system, but obviously the education system. Amen. Uh, Lieutenant, I just, as 
one of the as we end this podcast, a couple of things I just want to say. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. And um, there's a line. Uh, my favorite author is John Steinbeck, and John Steinbeck in a in a book called The Wayward Bus. There's a character named Juan Chicoy, who's a bus driver, and his wife worries about him every day when he goes to work because he's a man, and there's very few men in this world, as everyone learns sooner or later. And you're a man, and I really appreciate it. To me, it is a blessing to have you in my life, and for your person that I look up to called my brother and told him that day what happened in court because I just still it just it tickles me that this young man picked up something in the way you carry yourself that he knew it was uh, not you're not to be messed with it you communicated it without a word and uh, so very much appreciate it sir well you know I appreciate being here and I just want everybody to know I wasn't paid to come here. <laughs> I, I did it out of love for Clark and Serge. Thank you very much. And I really like I really like to get the truth out there to people and I, I think people need the truth and the truth is not very much appreciated. appreciated. <laughs> and you know like you, you can't handle the truth well. They, there you go. The truth is like a hot potato you can, nowadays. You can handle the truth. The truth just needs to be given to you. Amen. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. But life is never easy. There's work to be done and obligations to be met. Obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. This podcast is the copyrighted property of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines Incorporated, a Maryland corporation. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the written permission of the owner is prohibited. For more information, we invite you to visit the website, blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com. All of the words in the URL address use common spelling and are typed together with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and we welcome your remarks through email. The email addresses of the co-creators, Serge Antonin and Clark Ollers, may be found on the website.